Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the Christian life. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me, as most of the time, is my brother Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's it's so great to be back uh, on the set of Hymn Talk, talking about some of our favorite hymns. Yeah, we're, I'm, I've been calling this Season 2 season of two. Hymn Talk. Okay. You know, it's 2021. Good. We're going to start calling it Season 2. Is this the first episode of Season 2? Uh, no, we've already released one. Okay. Um, it might be the second. It Was might that be the one fourth. with Aaron Menikoff? Yes. So I listened to that episode. I, I never listened to the episodes I'm not on, <laughs> at least very rarely. But I did listen to that episode, and it was very good. I mean, um, come to think of it, I can't remember. Oh, you guys talk about Reformation song. Yeah. But um, the dialogue about the very important work of revitalization, mm. I thought was very uh, stimulating and encouraging. And I very much appreciate you drawing out the thoughts of Pastor Aaron and... Uh, reflecting on a lot of his experience of the work of revitalization and how necessary and important it is. So it's a good episode. Well, it, it's very often that the best bands, their sophomore albums are their best albums, <laughs> their second album. I'm thinking of Led Zeppelin. I'm thinking of the Dave Matthews band. It's often their they're second. They're, are, are they're more mature. They're most muscular. That's where they're really flexing. Yeah, sure. I think that's what we're going to be doing on uh, season two of Him okay. Talk. And we'll have more and more special guests like Aaron. So uh, we're thankful for him. Well, Alex, today, uh, the title for this, uh, the tentative title for this conversation is Heaven, the Last Day, and Christian Anticipation. I've been thinking uh, a lot about the theme of waiting in the Christian life. I want to read several texts to you real quick. We might pare this down and, and edit these down, but I just want you to hear uh, these texts. Jesus addresses his disciples in Luke 12. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. In Romans 8, uh, Paul, who after he explains that all creation waits in groaning for the revelation of the sons of God, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians where he describes the disciples there as those who wait for the revelation of God, or revelation of Christ. In Titus 2, Paul addresses Pastor Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, the author says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. And what will he appear for, Alex? Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. A lot of waiting, Alex, in Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, Jude 1 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Alex, it appears that to be a Christian, by definition, is to wait. To be united to Christ means to yearn, to live with eager expectation, expectation for heaven, for the new heavens and the new earth, for the revelation of Christ and his people, even expectation for coming justice. 
Yet I view in my own experience, in my own heart, and in my own uh, discipling of others, uh, Christian anticipation seems to be a neglected feature, a neglected grace and, and discipline mm-hmm. in so many of our lives. I, I find so many of us are so focused on the present, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's around us, that we can be, our, our focus is diminished upon the future. Uh, would you echo that? Would you say you notice that, that as well? Uh, you got any thoughts on Christian anticipation? Yeah, I think, I think in general you're right. Um, and not that you said this, but I don't definitely don't think the Bible encourages us um, to think upon the future more so than the present hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor does it encourage us to think more upon the present more than the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the gospel uh, in Paul's letter to Titus, the grace of God trains us in how to live upright and godly lives in the present age. Mm. That phrase, the present age, is used in a number of other places, I believe, in the New Testament. Um, we're to give thought to the present age, give thought to what we're doing with our lives today. Jesus gives a lot of attention to today and living in light of today and the present hour and all that. But you're right. You just read a number of texts and, and dozens more can be adduced to make the point that the will of Christ is that the Christian take a posture of waiting, a posture of expectation, um, should should be should be consider should should be giving considerable reflection to the coming kingdom, to the return of Jesus. Should defer certain pleasures until that day. I was reading in my devotions. I think it's in Luke eleven or twelve. It's such an interesting phrase. Jesus is 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 warning his disciples not to not to store up treasures on earth, but there too. And I'm I'm paraphrasing now. The there too. Um, Fasten money belts that will not wear out. Yeah, you know what a what a sort of in-your-face picture. Like it's like you could imagine say to a woman or to or to a man. You know, you, you want you want a fat wallet for heaven mm-hmm. that you can stock with eternal treasure and money that will never wear out. Mm-hmm. You don't want that 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 wallet. You're never going to have to replace. Right. And it's going to be huge, and you have lots of treasure in there. And what is he saying? He's saying, well, don't store up treasures in the pleasant, present now. We're not here to coast and to live and to you know, enjoy and rest. And we're, there is a, a deferring and a looking ahead to, to where, you know, as Paul says, the sufferings of this present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glories that will be revealed. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think your diagnosis is right. Not enough preaching is geared toward cultivating and nurturing an ache for heaven, mm-hmm. a longing for heaven. And thus not as many Christians are given to longing and yearning for the new heavens and the new earth. Do you think that's perhaps more so today than previous generations? Um, no. I, I, I should say I don't see any reason why it would be different. I think most people throughout history were preoccupied in the present circumstances of their lives Everyone's sufferings feel like the most real and imminent thing right now. And Mm -hmm. it probably was that way as people Mm -hmm. suffered more in previous generations. Um, But we suffer still. The world is a place of suffering and hardship. And that has a tendency, and I think this is very much what Paul is saying in Romans 8. Is it Romans 8? The sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory Mm -hmm. to be revealed. I think he's saying suffering has a tendency to obscure our our anticipation of the glories to come that 
that that that we can get caught up in the present day suffering. Hmm. And he's trying to say, let the suffering become an occasion for comparison yeah. and an occasion for longing. And I think every generation throughout the ages has struggled with that. Hmm. Hmm. I, I don't know. I'd have to think more I, would, about it. I would argue that suffering tends to snap into focus anticipation. Well, it certainly should. For for most people. Well, and Because as, as soon as my present circumstances become laborious or odious, mm. I, I want to look towards the future for, for something better. I mean, that's why it's been said that religion is the opium of the masses. I was about to say, yeah. Karl Marx would say you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he got some things right. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, no, I mean, Karl Marx, yeah, he would say, faced with the misery of life, um, one of the things that helps the working classes cope with that misery yes. is the, the hope of, of the life to come. And so you're sure, and he's right about that, by yeah. the way. But yes, you're, you, I think that's definitely I, true. I would, I would submit, I would think that because... W- just just in this age, I mean, just look at longevity, the average uh, lifespan. It, it's at its longest. It's maybe taken a bit of a dip recently. But we've gotten professional at uh, uh, escaping death and thinking yes. about death. Yeah, and, and, um, and difficulty. Yeah, we, 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 we're just very highly skilled at um, not thinking about eternity. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're somebody like John Owen, who buried all your, yeah, your children, certainly. Uh, you're thinking about death nearly every day, nearly every yes. week. Yes, I would say, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's certainly in the West, mm-hmm. let's just say America, the daily or let's say monthly or yearly suffering of the average person was greater 300 years ago than it is today. Even just from a physical standpoint, as you just acknowledged, I think George Washington had one tooth removed like every year for like mm-hmm. 20-something years Yeah, um, with no medication. <laughs> just let it yank the thing out. People suffered in all kinds of ways. But I do think in the world today, there are some forms of suffering that are far more acute than they were in previous centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, there is the capability of unleashing certain kinds of evil in the present day mm. that were not unleashed with the same potency well, there, there's also the fact that I, th- I think humans have a um, fantastic ability to normalize anything. So sure. just because people might have suffered bodily more in a different generation, well, it would have been normal to them. Um, mm-hmm. Yet even Paul in the first century needs to remind people to wait eagerly for the coming of Christ, wait yeah. eagerly for the, for the last day. So we're not necessarily much more privileged for, from that perspective. Yeah, and I'm also saying, for example— I think um, there are certain things with the loss of an appreciation of a transcendent God in the West hmm. has the tendency to increase, I think, human tendency to torture one another. I think there are forms of torture and okay. misery that are present now that yeah. were not present 300 years ago. More than that, I think technology introduces new ways to introduce suffering into people's lives. And I think the rise of certain totalitarian regimes across the world have provided precedent hmm. for certain forms of suffering that were wholly unknown to previous centuries. So in some ways, we are free from some of the difficulties of previous ages. In some ways, we've invented some new and um, uh, forms of evil that are Himalayan in their proportions compared right. to some previous ones. What do you think are some common reasons why Christians tend to... Uh, be distracted from the future and thinking about the future? Uh, well, uh, present-day suffering actually can be one. I'm with you. 
the, the Christian perspective is that suffering should have uh, should should narrow our focus. Yeah, and should have the sense of waking us out of the stupor of the here and now, and to and to impress upon us a longing for heaven. So that would, but but at the same time, oftentimes the imminence of our circumstances literally just has us like looking down at the mud mm-hmm. rather than looking upward at the bright skies. Mm-hmm. So I think. I think that's a factor. I think uh, our devices and technologies and distractions and all the things we use to sedate ourselves are uh, reasons we don't think about the future as well. Yeah. Um, I don't think most of the Christians I know are hedonists, mm-hmm. but we all have a temptation toward hedonism. There are just so many pleasures around us that we can indulge in. Yeah. Um, so, so fr- from Netflix, I mean, mm-hmm. you could, you could, you could avoid your troubles and avoid reflection and avoid contemplation of deep questions and of death and all in a thousand different ways from binge watching shows on Netflix to Amazon shopping to social media like Facebook and Twitter. So yeah, I think um, the world manufactures distractions from death and from the future. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes Anticipation for a, a Christian's future uniquely challenging is is it's so hazy what that future will be like. We're we're only given a, a limited picture of mm-hmm. what our future is to be, what it's going to be marked by, what the things we'll be doing. Um, nobody has a clear picture of what's in heaven, what what it's what it exactly it will be like. We know we will be with the Lord. Yeah. Um, I think of you know something I look forward to now. Uh, it's COVID season. I haven't gone on a, a legitimate vacation in quite some time now. Mm-hmm. I, I so long to get in a plane and go to somewhere like Switzerland mm-hmm. or England. Mm-hmm. Well, to nurture my anticipation, I can go to travel blogs. I can look at pictures. I can see all sorts of things. I can. I have memories of when I went you over eat there. Swiss chocolate. I can eat Swiss chocolate. You can eat I, Swiss rolls. <laughs> I, can, I can do so many different things. Uh, I can get a clear picture. Of, yeah, of what yeah. that future will be when I finally get to go. Uh, heaven, not so much. Christ's well, return, not as much. I mean, you can read the book of Revelation, but it's still veiled imagery. Yes. Um, we don't have a clear picture. I think it's a unique challenge of being a Christian. Yeah, we're called to wait. Yes. We're called to have anticipation, but we, know, we don't know exactly what for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to add just another reason why people probably don't think enough about the world to come is is that even though Christians believe in the world to come, they live in a culture that doesn't. And so you go back to, let's just say, 300 years ago or so, pretty much anywhere in the world, everyone believed that death was preparatory for a future state of existence in some mm. form or fashion. Hmm. So everything from art, poetry, um even music. in the political arena, yeah. music, there was frequent talk of death and life after death and consequences after death. But, but the, and, and, and as you mentioned, John Owen buried uh, 12 kids. Ten uh, kids. Ten kids. <laughs> yeah. um, death was all around you. Mm-hmm. You know, ours is one of the first generations, maybe the generation before us, of people who could grow up through grade school and never know someone who died as a child. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's unheard of in the history of the world. We're yeah. one of the first generations who can say that. And many of us still do know children that die. Mm-hmm. So all I'm just saying is the, the imminence of death and also the belief in life after death was ubiquitous hmm. uh, up to 100 years ago. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, young people died all the time. And songs and poetry and art and literature and, again, even, even other arenas frequently discuss life after death. And so the contemplation about death and reflection upon death was just... You just couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere. And so people thought a lot more about it. Now we are in a culture that just, first of all, doesn't believe in the life to come and therefore views death as being a very little consequence. It's just Hmm. an animal brute fact. Mm -hmm. doesn't have any significance attached to it. And so there's nothing in the, the culture is not doing anything to help us in in thinking beyond this imminent frame of today, Hmm. you know? Hmm. Well said. Can a Christian be so heavenly minded they're no earthly good? Not truly. Yeah. Not truly. I mean, uh, the Bible teaches, teaches us that heavenly mindedness um, uh, makes us of earthly good. Hmm. It teaches us to renounce ungodliness in the present hmm. age. It yeah. teaches us to put on righteousness. Paul and the other New Testament writers will use the hope of heaven the prospect of eternal life with Jesus as incentive to holiness in the present day. If that's your destiny, if that's your calling, well, how ought you to live in in the here and now? Jesus frequently uh, used that kind of perspective. Hmm. Live this way in order to inherit eternal life. Because you do inherit eternal life, live this way. That's a very common... So, if you truly want to understand what it is to be heavenly minded, if you truly understand what it means it will have the effect of producing godliness in the present life and good works in the present life and mm. action in the present life. As a matter of fact, since we talked about Aaron Medikoff a moment ago, he just wrote a really good article about this at Nine Marks. It doesn't really have to do exactly with what we're talking about precisely, but he wrote an article, I think the title is something like, Those Who Are Heavenly Minded Are Of Most Earthly Good or something like yes. that. And he's talking about activism in the Christian life and serving God and how how heavenly mindedness drives us to faithfulness in the present. So hmm. I think it's nine marks mm-hmm. where he wrote that article. Well, I'll, I'll dig it up and I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, yeah, Alex, but Peter says in Second Peter, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the uh, this um, the end of the world, really. What sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for? Hmm and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's exactly right. That's exactly the kind of logic we see in the scripture again and again and again. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do we reconcile that? I feel this in my own heart. I trust you probably do too. I'm to long for Christ's return. Mm-hmm. I want Christ to return now. Mm-hmm. I'm to be of those who love his appearing. And yet, there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. There's so many people who haven't heard the gospel. There's so many people in my life that haven't turned to Christ. How do I long for that to happen uh, while at the same time, my young son, I don't know if he knows the Lord yet or not. How, sure. how, do, how do we hold those things? Are we to just hold those things in tension and just obey the Bible? <laughs> or is, is there a way we can make sense of those two things? Yeah, well, when, when faced with a kind of tension like that, the, the, the most simple impulse is just obey the Bible, do what yeah. the Bible says, and don't be too concerned about reconciling with attention. But no, I, I don't think, like, I have small children. I don't know if they know the Lord. I suspect they don't. And so I, I don't think there's, there's, there's a contradiction inherent in longing for the kingdom, longing for the return of Christ, trusting it will happen in his time and for his good purposes, 
and at the same time urgently hoping that my kids will be counted in Christ before that day, because mm-hmm. that's the only time you can be counted in Christ. Nothing mm-hmm. can can happen after. So, um, yeah, if 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 a longing for the new heavens and new earth provokes in us an urgency about mission and an urgency in evangelism and an urgency to get things done for Christ, well, that's a healthy outcome. Hmm. So, so I can remember not being married and hoping that Christ would wait to come before I was married. Mm-hmm. But there was also this trust that if he comes, he will come at the perfect time. And whatever I am not given in this life or in the life to come, that's subject to his sovereignty and his perfect plan. And I, I know I know if there are any tears over it, he's going to bottle them up. He's mm. going to wipe mm-hmm. them away. And I will be in perfect bliss no matter the outcome. Mm. So, But if it, if it does prompt me to... It is a very godly impulse to say to people in your life, Christ can come at any moment, therefore yeah. I'm not wasting any time. Yeah. And to say that to your unbelieving kids, mm-hmm. to say, to think, I want Christ to return, and I know he can return any time, therefore I'm going to be really urgent with my kids mm-hmm. that, that, that they close with Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. So something I struggle with when, when I think about heaven is... I have a pretty good life now. And we talked about suffering a moment ago. But Paul calls us to rejoice. And actually, he then says again, I say rejoice. Mm -hmm. We're we're called to live with a a present joy. Mm -hmm. Yet, it seems to be we're supposed to have this yearning, this longing, this something's not quite right. I want something more out of life Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you view those in conflict or those uh, in need of reconciliation as well? This, This idea that something's incomplete. I'm anticipating something, mm-hmm. while at the same time I'm perfectly content and happy in Christ. Told, told to be content, yeah. Um, and I'm to re- moreover I'm called to rejoice. I'm commanded to rejoice now, not just look forward to the joy yes, to come. But the rejoicing we do now is often centered. Well, it's empty if there's no hope of heaven. Hmm. So they're connected. I mean, yeah. My contentment in the here and now, and satisfaction in the here and now, and rejoicing in the here and now is at all times dependent on the truth that the here and now is not all that there is. Mm. So I am enabled to be composed and unmoved through the storms and trials of life because I have the hope of eternal life with Christ. Yeah. That, yeah. that provides a certain stability. It's, yeah, that, that future joy kind of radiates present joy. Yeah, and Yes, that's exactly right. And and I but I, I also would just add that very few people, if they live long, get to the end of their lives and say, um, life was very easy for me. Or it was predominantly pleasurable. Hmm. Even today with all the so called comforts that we have. Yeah. I don't know if it's a function of growing up or a function of walking with people through painful circumstances in their lives. But I do think life is mostly misery. Yeah. And it's mostly pain and it's mostly hardship. And um, it is not mostly happiness. Hmm. And I think most young people would look at that and think that's crazy or kind of macabre or um, pessimistic. And I think most people in their 70s would say, that's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly, well, certainly, in most of the world, I'm saying even in the 
affluent and opulent West. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's all the more reason why we as God's people need to be singing about our future. We Amen. need, we need to be singing about heaven. We need to be singing and hastening Christ's return in song. Yeah, the the the, the logic of the of Romans eight, all the groaning that happens in that mm-hmm. passage, the creation's groaning, uh, the people of God are groaning. That's that's status quo. That's that's um, steady state yep. life. Yeah, groaning. Mm-hmm. And I know we don't always feel every day like we're, gro- but but really, certainly compared to heaven. We are groaning yes. in, in the present age, and some people miserably under horrendous mm-hmm. trials and hardships. I, I didn't verify this, but I've heard another pastor say this, that if you open up a hymnal from 200 years ago, you would have had dozens of songs about heaven, Yeah, yeah. Um, even more than just a verse about heaven, but yeah. songs about the future. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, and, and I'm thankful a lot of hymns um, even hymns that are not primarily about heaven. Yes, the best hymns often make reference in the final verse yeah. to heaven. Or there's always a there's always a movement toward mm-hmm. the world to come, which I'm very thankful for. It would be very rare at our church, at Emmanuel Church, that you would have a Sunday where you don't sing at some point about resurrection life or the life to come, yes. or heaven or that day that's coming, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think otherwise it's it's. <laughs> It's why are we here? Why, yeah. why are we even? What's the point of even getting getting together if we're not reminding us yeah. each other of who we are and what lies ahead? And I don't know if this is the article you're referencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Nine Marks just came up with a journal on heaven. Mm-hmm. That was their latest Nine Marks journal. And I didn't read the article, but someone wrote an article called "Sing for Heaven's Sake." Hmm. And their their point was like, sing about heaven. Yes, you know, not just sing in your church. Mm. You know, but. I like that title a lot, Sing for Heaven's Sake. Yeah. You know, yeah. What are some of your favorite songs about heaven or songs that reference Christ's return or the last day or, or heaven? You know, just as you said that, I thought of a song that's not a Christian hymn at all, but it's a beautiful song. It's, it really is a wonderful song, especially when you know the context. You're not going to say, I can only imagine, are you? No, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> Give me a little grace here, but Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton. It is such a touching song. It's a yeah. beautiful song. The context of that song was the death of Eric, Eric Clapton's son. Yeah. I think he fell out of a window or something. And it's a very, very moving song. I, I have no reason to believe Clapton's a Christian, but it's very moving. Um, you said it, favorite songs about heaven. Um, oh, wow. Um, so many that have like a line about heaven. Yeah. Or, you know, um, I, love, I love the way it is well meditates on on the last day and the coming of Christ um my i think perhaps my favorite would be for all the saints oh uh, the, right, yeah. the king of glory passes on his way yeah, what a yeah. sight what a thing yeah, to yeah, yeah. do yeah i think i think songs that meditate on not just making it through the trials like we sung a song this past sunday Christ the sure and steady anchor and it mm-hmm. talks about well, when we get to that last day, there'll be clouds behind us yeah. and life secure and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Well, that's beautiful, you know, and, 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 and there's lots of songs like that. But it seems to me, at least personally, my favorite songs are not just the, oh, trials are over. Now mm-hmm. there's a, it's, it's songs that focus on the scene mm-hmm. of Christ at the middle mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, like, look ye saints, the sight is glorious. Yeah. See the man of sorrows yeah. now. Yeah. You know, from the fight return victorious, every knee to him shall bow. Mm-hmm. That contrast of Christ 
as the man of sorrows, crown of thorns on his head. Look at him now we're, in the splendor of heaven. We're past, we're past the Advent season, uh, or I guess we're at the tail end technically of the Advent season. Um, but you made rep- you brought to my attention that joy to the world is about the mm. second coming of yeah, the yeah. Lord. That mm. that would be that would be an excellent one. Well, and, you know, it's a great one. What's the song? Um, what's the first line? All of- praise, all, all hail the power of Jesus. All hail name. the power of Jesus. <laughs> there we <name>. go. <laughs> there's like three or four great lines in that song. Um, uh, Look ye saints, there's great lines in that song. Crown him with many crowns. Mm-hmm. There's great lines in that song. Again, you could see in all those a lot of regal imagery, but but things that 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 put me in the middle of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 yes. and Revelation 21. Yeah. I also very much appreciate more and more the, the more I become acquainted in my own life and witness in the lives of others intense suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, references, there's a beautiful picture in Romans 7 and in other places, uh, not Romans, Revelation 7 and in other places in Revelation of the shepherding imagery that's very prominent in the new heavens and new earth. Hmm, mm-hmm. That that's like when Psalm twenty three finds its greatest fulfillment. It's yeah. being fulfilled now in all right. of our lives. But but then the shepherd will lead us by yeah. the rivers of living water. And so songs like we sung a paraphrase of Psalm twenty three this past Sunday, mm-hmm. and it 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 focuses on the hope of being with the shepherd forever and being being led. Uh, as his sheep, being in his flock forever. That's also some of my favorite kind of imagery to think about. Yeah, and and to that point, you sort of referenced it earlier, I do enjoy those songs that connect the dots between present suffering and future glory. Mm-hmm. Um, songs like Christ, Our Hope, and Life and Death, that Christ, oh, that Christ yeah. is an anchor in, in our life now. Yeah. And through death and the glory to come, yeah, that I, there we will rise to meet the Lord, where sin and death will be no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, that's that song, Christ our hope and life and death. Have, have have we done a hymn talk on that? I'm not sure. We may have. Yeah, uh, based on the answer to Heidelberg Catechism question one, I really hope because that's like my favorite song right now. Mm-hmm. I so hope it lasts the test of time. Yeah, and my grandkids are singing that 40 years from now. I really, yeah. really hope so. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alex, I want to turn our attention to the hymn, the podcast, and that is The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Another one of my favorites about heaven. Yes. Great song. The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It is attributed to Samuel Rutherford, uh, although I don't think he ever set out to write a hymn, and it was, I think, compilated by, and I, I could be wrong on this, but the credits go to an Anne Cousin in 1857, mm-hmm. and uh, the tune is written by, I believe, a German man that I, whose name I will not try to pronounce, but he was a one. He put <laughs> the the tune that is most common to this hymn is is titled Rutherford. Um, but the sands of time are sinking. Alex, can you tell us a little bit? You you've read some about Rutherford or and works by Rutherford. Rutherford, there's really only one book by his that anybody reads today, and it's his letters. Mm-hmm. And that's Banner of Truth is a really thick volume of his letters. Um, and this hymn I, I was composed based on his letters. I don't know if it's that Ann Cousins individual, but someone lifted several lines mm-hmm. from from various places in his letters yeah. to compose. This song, uh, Samuel Rutherford lived in the 17th century. I think he was born around 1600. Yeah, the dates I have are 1600 to 1661. Okay, yeah. He um, he was a Scottish theologian. He began his career. He, he studied at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, interestingly enough, many historians believe that he had uh, an illicit relationship while he was in college mm-hmm. and was thus banned from the school. Hmm. 
um, and he acknowledges shame over some things in his past later on in his life. He, many people believe that's what he's referring to. But um, uh, he, I think, is restored. He is ordained to ministry sometime, I believe, in his 20s. And um, he ends up, uh, so we're in the 1620s, 1630s. Um, Charles I is still on the throne. He is seeking to impose high church measures in Scotland. I believe Stephen Rutherford writes some book against Arminianism, and it ends up getting him under more or less house arrest. He's sent to Aberdeen, and he's he's basically under arrest. He's he's in prison there, in in Aberdeen in East Scotland, and um, uh, he is brought back uh, triumphantly in 1638, I believe, 37, something like that. Uh, he returns to Edinburgh. He becomes one of the Scottish Covenanters who resists the high church measures that Charles is trying to impose upon Scotland. And um, uh, Scotland takes their stand mm-hmm. on basically what, what became Reformed Presbyterianism mm-hmm. in Scotland, mm-hmm. and that became the state religion in Scotland. Um, so you, you, you hear people make reference to the National Covenant yep. in Scotland. Uh, uh, Rutherford is at the heart of that. Rutherford's letters, which again are what he's most known for, the beautiful letters, uh, they were written, though, during that time he was in prison in Aberdeen. Um, but anyway, he becomes a professor at St. Andrews. To this day, St. Andrews really references his legacy. I think he's actually buried in St. Andrews. Uh, another important facet to his life and legacy is that he was one of the few Scottish theologians that was invited to the Westminster Assembly. So the Westminster Confession, written in 1646. Um, Rutherford is there. He's a contributor, a significant contributor to that confession, which becomes the standard for Reformed Presbyterianism uh, uh, many places across the world. And uh, and then he's, yeah, he's back in Scotland, ministers there, he's a pastor, a professor there, and under the reign of Charles II, you have Oliver Cromwell, the interregnum in the 1650s. Uh, Cromwell uh, dies, his son Richard tries to serve in his father's place, doesn't work out. You have the restoration of the British monarchy, 1660, something like that. And uh, Rutherford is arrested. He's one of the first Scottish Mm. Puritans, theologians, to be arrested, in part because he wrote a book called Lex Rex, which is by those who actually read that kind of stuff. Very few people actually read that book, Mm. but they consider that his actual magnum opus. Mm. The letters are a work of Christian piety, devotional type literature. Lex Rex is this big work. Uh, Francis Schaeffer famously loved Lex Rex. He thought it was kind of the foundation of... Um, he, it's it's like the Christian version of John Stuart Mill. Hmm. All the mm-hmm. foundations for liberty and and equality of opportunity in national life. He yeah. thinks that, that, that um, Rutherford is one of the seminal thinkers that kind of gets that going. He's probably wrong about that. He probably gives Rutherford too much credit. Hmm. But Lex Rex is definitely not a pro, certainly not King. for the monarchy yeah. as it was manifesting itself under Charles I and certainly under Charles II. The book is seen as seditious. It's burned in all kinds of places. And Rutherford is arrested. It is almost certain he's going to be killed. But in some ways, by the grace of God, I guess we could say, uh, he dies of natural causes uh, hmm. before he could be executed hmm. um, in, in some sort of ignoble fashion, hmm. and but nonetheless dies in that sense a martyr. But uh, the only thing I know of that anybody reads today really is the letters, and I would I would definitely commend them. 
and you'll you get something of that in this song, mm-hmm. something of the sense of Christ that Rutherford had, yeah. and the experiential relationship he had with Christ, and how that comes through in the letters. It comes through, I think, in this song. Yeah, and I just wish that we could speak with such beauty as yeah. this song. There's, I mean, there's, a, there's a yeah, the, the, his his command of the English language, the poetic style in which he writes. Yeah. Well, we could, we should say a couple things about the song. I mean, the 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 title is The Sands of Time Are Sinking, and that's the that's the first that's the first line of it. What I love about this hymn, and this is something I uh, something of the ethos of this hymn, I was able it, it even gripped me as a child singing this song. Mm-hmm. It just something about the tune, something about these lyrics, but placing the Christian in the proper time mm-hmm. that we are in the present. The present isn't the future, yet we are longing for the future. There's something incomplete. There's something mm-hmm. not perfect. There's something that's that's not all quite right right with mm-hmm. the present in this very moment for the mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. As much as they rejoice in Christ, as much as they've been spared from all sorts of judgment, uh, they look forward to heaven. But he even says he says that more so much so much more clearly. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. There's this comparing and this contrast between present experience and future. It doesn't go on to say dark, dark has yes. been the midnight, but yes. day spring is at hand. Yeah, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Yeah, and uh, then the next few verses they they seem to um, trade on this image of a bride and and his and the groom uh, being the church in Christ. And there's there's language of the beauty of the bride, but the, the focus of the hymn is the groom. I think the verse that that captures this perfectly is the third verse, um, speaking about Christ. Uh, oh Christ, He is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love. The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, His mercy will expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Mm-hmm. And that's how every line mm-hmm. concludes in this song, mm-hmm. uh, in Emmanuel's land. Any other thoughts, Alex, you have on this hymn? I love, I think it's the last verse. I don't have the text in front of me, but it, it, it has that line. Uh, the, the king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. Yes. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. Mm. Um, beautiful, beautiful poetry. Uh, rich, rich language to describe the hope of heaven. And um, yeah, I think it's a classic, and it's well appreciated across the Christian church in so many places for good reason. I think Tom Schreiner, his uh, biblical theology, he mm. called the king and his beauty. Mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong about that. I think mm-hmm. that's what he called it, playing off that line from the song. Well, it, I did actually did a deep dive on the history of veils this morning, mm-hmm. um, wondering why why do people wear veils? Where did it come from? I didn't. I, I imagine that I would find something more interesting than I did. Um, but I think it's it, there's imagery there that Christians should reclaim, uh, even in a wedding when if people don't really use veils anymore. But the fact that when when the veils removed, that there's something of that that's the moment where we behold Christ. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. you know, Paul speaks of we with unveiled face beholding the glory yeah, of the Lord. Right. There's a degree to which we do that now, mm-hmm. but in such a in so much more uh, fully in the in the life to come. Yeah, it really is a glorious song. It's it, it's it's um. And I think it's a good testament to the power of of uh, poetic and muscular language 
to capture the truth and evoke a sense of beauty, hmm. a sense of longing, and a sense of love hmm. to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it also happens to be the, the music, that tune Rutherford, is our intro music for this podcast. That's right. So okay, the intro good. and outro music is uh, the tune to The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Uh, just a wonderful tune. And uh, Alex and I commend this hymn to you. Alex, thank you for your time. Thank you, brother.